The first reading for today is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in, Be in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there, ahead of them, went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. The second reading is, and it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 to 31, and chapter 3, verses 18 to 23. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one may boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do not deceive yourselves. If you think that you are wise in this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast about human leaders, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Who is the wisest person that you can think of? Who is the wisest person you can think of? Maybe someone famous for being a great thinker. Or maybe someone who's had a profound influence on you personally. Maybe a family member, a grandparent or a parent. Maybe a wise friend or a trusted counsellor. Who, I wonder, is the wisest person you can think of? Are they educated or uneducated? Do they have a lot of letters after or even before their name? And here's the thing. On the basis of who your wise person is, would you say that wisdom and knowledge are the same thing? Because I'm not sure that they always are. And I think we have a bit of a crisis of wisdom in our world. I think we are knowledge rich, but wisdom poor. And that wisdom and knowledge have become confused or conflated. And sometimes it can seem as though everyone with access to Wikipedia or Google on their phone thinks that just because they have pretty much the entire sum of human knowledge available to them at the press of a button, that somehow imparts enough wisdom for them to take decisions which are going to stand the test of time. Whereas I think it is perfectly possible to be wise with relatively little knowledge, just as someone can have a lot of knowledge, but not very much wisdom. Knowing how to make a car go is, after all, not the same thing as having the wisdom to drive it safely. And knowing how to find the answer to everything is not the same thing as having the wisdom to use that knowledge well. We're often told that we live in a culture of cynicism towards experts where those who have immersed themselves for decades in a topic or a discipline are disparaged because they have 
a supposed vested interest in the subject that they've devoted themselves to. While, of course, you know, anyone who's acquired some superficial knowledge about something by a bit of a quick Google, but not necessarily any great depth, is now free to consider themselves the equal of those who've spent many years studying. Oscar Wilde famously defined the cynic as someone who knows the price of everything but the value of nothing. And I think that in many ways, as the availability of knowledge has grown in our culture over the last decades, so has our cynicism about those who would use that knowledge. We often think the expert is hiding something or up to something. And so we take nothing at face value and we make our own judgments about what is wise. Which is why, in the face of all of the evidence as to its benefits, some parents refuse to vaccinate their children. And it's why when I was in a hospital on Friday visiting someone, I saw signs everywhere talking about the rising measles epidemic and the effect that's having on children in our city. It's why in the face of all the evidence of its reality, some people, some very important people, still deny climate change. And it's why in the face of, well, just, you know, all the evidence, some people think the world is only a few thousand years old. And I'm just going to put this here and leave it for a moment. Not all views are equally valid. They're just not. We live in a world where people think that one view is as valid as another. And just because someone thinks it, it must be all right. Not all views are equally valid. I'm sorry, I just don't think they are. And also, not everyone is equipped to take all decisions. If you're not a trained doctor, you're probably not equipped to take medical decisions. A little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. And a lot of knowledge can be even more dangerous if it's not also accompanied by wisdom. Sometimes, when someone comes into my study here at Bloomsbury, if you've never been, come and see me sometime. I kind of live in the South Tower, about on a level with the organ pipes, just up there. I don't live there, but I kind of feel like I do sometimes. Uh, people come into my study, and they look at the bookshelves, bursting with books, and they'll say to me, have you read all of them? And the answer, of course, is no. Not yet, and possibly not ever. I've read a lot of them, and I've skimmed most of the others to have a fair idea of what's in them, should I ever need it to prepare a sermon or something. But there are still a lot of words in my study that I've not read yet. Sometimes I'll get a statement, follow-up statement along the lines of, well, if you've read so much, you must know a lot. And again, the reply is no. I know quite a bit about a very few things, but actually what I have come to know best is how little I know about most things. The great author and philosopher Umberto Eco calls this the effect, he calls it the anti-library. He claims that the, the value of the unread books in a library is far greater than the value of those that have already been read. Because the unread books remind you constantly of how much there still is to discover. 
And Marilyn Robinson, another wonderful author. Have you read Gilead? If you haven't, it's just wonderful. Marilyn Robinson says, we are part of a mystery, a splendid mystery within which we must attempt to orient ourselves if we are to have a sense of our own nature. Now, I would have both Umberto Eco and Marilyn Robinson on my personal list of very wise people. And I'm struck by the fact that they both value ignorance, mystery, and not knowing as a crucial part of their journey into wisdom. Wisdom and knowledge, it seems, do not fully equate. And I think that those of us who hope to live wisely need to hear this very clearly. We will not necessarily get more wise just by acquiring more knowledge. When I worked at the Baptist College in Cardiff, Prospective students would want to come to us for three or four years with a view to being accredited as ordained church ministers at the end of their period of study. And I'm in touch online with quite a lot of my former students. Facebook is a wonderful thing for keeping in touch with people. And it's always a delight to see how they're doing, especially when they're not doing too badly. It gets a bit distressing when you hear stories of it going horribly wrong, but you know, that's ministry sometimes. One of the comments that appears with great regularity, however, in uh, former student posts goes something like this. Today, in my church, I had to do this, followed by that, and then unexpectedly in the afternoon, I had to do the other. They certainly didn't train me for this at college. And I find myself thinking, well, no, of course we didn't. No ministerial training course can ever impart the level of knowledge required to cover every single possible thing that a minister might have to do in every conceivable ministry situation. I still discover new things in ministry on a daily basis myself, and I've been doing it for nearly 20 years now. And of course, the truth of the matter is that you don't become a minister by being taught how to do it. Although that clearly there are some skills that it's useful to acquire along the way, I do get that. Rather, a person becomes a minister by discovering within themselves a God-given capacity to love and to serve and to exemplify wisdom in the face of an often foolish world. And I don't think this is just true for ordained ministry either. I think the same thing could be said about each of us in our own vocation to Christian discipleship, whatever that looks like in our lives. There are a few things I find more distressing than a Christian who believes they have only knowledge left to learn. You know the kind of person I'm talking about. Someone who assiduously attends Bible studies, but only to learn more of how the Bible can reinforce their already unshakable worldview. Give me the honest doubter and the questioning believer any day of the week. True growth in discipleship occurs not through the acquisition of yet more knowledge, but by discovering and coming to terms with our lack of knowledge. Growth in wisdom does not come easily, and it cannot be bought or downloaded to be ingested in bite-sized daily chunks. Rather, wisdom comes from beyond ourselves. It's a gift of grace that we cannot earn and can only discover as we learn more of who we are and who God is.
Maybe it comes with age. That can certainly help. And we do well to listen to and respect our elders. We are wise to pay attention to those who have discovered that the certainties of youth tends to founder on the rocks of reality. But also, looking at some of our more elderly global leaders, I'm minded to think that wisdom doesn't necessarily come with advancing years, any more than it automatically comes with advancing knowledge. And anyway, I can think of young people who might have what we call wisdom beyond their years. It's a great joy to me that here at Bloomsbury we have deacons in the church who are in their 20s, people who offer wise leadership from a position of comparative youth. We ignore the rising generation's voice at our loss and our peril. Wisdom, it seems, is elusive, both within and beyond the Christian church. But it is also essential if we are to navigate our way through the confusing waters of our world. Interestingly, the Bible has quite a lot to say about wisdom what it is, where it comes from, and how we might acquire it. Famously, King Solomon asked God for wisdom rather than strength in battle or great wealth. And the story of how he resolved the dispute, you know, the one between the two women who both claimed the same child as their own? He said, well, chop it in half. They get half each. And the one who said, no, she can have it, he judged to be the mother. That story, along with other folklore versions of the same story from other cultures, you know, may not have been Solomon, it's one of those stories that's out there, but anyway, it kind of contributed to the philosophy of wise lawmaking for millennia. But of course, it's the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament that gives us our most complete exploration of the Jewish wisdom tradition. Reading like a kind of wisdom manual designed to provoke thought and stimulate reflection. I went through a period in my mid-teens where I really loved reading the book of Proverbs. And I, I was looking at it again this week as I was preparing this. And I thought, you know, there's some really great stuff in here. There's some slightly weird stuff too, but there's some really great stuff. Um, interestingly, Tarbo and Becky the second of the post-apartheid presidents of South Africa and the successor to Nelson Mandela. He famously turned again and again to the book of Proverbs in his public speeches as he sought to find a way forwards for a country with such inherited division whose recent history had included the foolishness of apartheid. And Mbeki says that Proverbs captures the spirit of Ubuntu, this is the South African philosophy promoted by Desmond Tutu, that all life is interconnected and that no one exists in a spiritual or moral vacuum. And Mbeki used to say that the wisdom of Ubuntu was that none of us is complete in and of ourselves, that we need others to find our true humanity. In other words, we need to discover the wisdom that lies in looking beyond our own worldview, beyond our own finite set of knowledge and opinions, looking into the mystery of the other. And maybe there's great wisdom in this. Finding in ourselves the humility to realise that our own limitations 
are actually the beginning of the path to wisdom as we discover what it is to look into the mind and soul of another because we are all connected. But the Jewish tradition doesn't end with the book of Proverbs. Rather, it goes beyond the kind of short saying you can remember to a belief that true wisdom is encountered as an extension of God. And there are places within the Hebrew Scriptures where wisdom appears as a kind of personified entity, active in the creation of the cosmos and continually active in holding all things together. One of the great mysteries of science is the question of why it is that we live in an ordered universe. Why it is that we have these laws of nature that we can comprehend, which appear to be stable and repeatable. And it is this sense that there is something ordered about creation that the Jewish wisdom tradition was trying to explore. And I think here we encounter the fusion of science and spirituality as the search for knowledge meets the desire for wisdom and the two find fulfillment in each other. Far from incompatible, science and faith both shine their respective lights into the darkness of chaos, discovering order within the mystery. And then if we move into the New Testament, this idea of wisdom personified is used to speak of Jesus, who becomes, for the early Christians, the one in whose life and teaching wisdom is made most fully real. And so we come to the story of the wise men from the East, who come to visit the infant Christ. Probably Zoroastrian astrologers, these wise scientists from ancient Persia have come to seek something that takes them beyond the boundary of their hard-won knowledge. They have heard the call of their anti-library and recognize that there is more to the mystery of life than they have yet understood. And so they follow the strange star in the sky to worship a child and what they encounter in that child is the fulfillment of the Jewish wisdom tradition. You see, it all comes together in the story that Matthew gives us of the visit of the Magi, as wisdom meets knowledge and knowledge meets wisdom. And the irony of this is that the one in whom wisdom is personified is an inarticulate child too young even for language, let alone learning. The sum of divine wisdom is communicated with the cosmos through the cry of a baby, drawing the brightest and best minds of the known world to experience the mystery of God in the innocence of new life. And this is wisdom. Beyond all our knowledge, Beyond all of our studies, beyond all our theologizing and philosophizing, beyond all our castles of intellectual analysis and our bastions of ideology, beyond all of this, we meet God in mystery, in a cry of a baby. And this is wisdom. And Paul knows it as we turn to our other reading and has learned it the hard way. Paul, 
the, the great debater, the great thinker, the great intellectual, Paul, the Pharisee, who, as he modestly put it, advanced beyond any of his own time in the knowledge and practices of the Jewish law, this great intellectual had to discover that he was sent to proclaim the gospel not with eloquent wisdom, but with the foolishness of wisdom. He says very clearly that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world because the true wisdom of God is found in Christ, the baby in the manger and the man upon the cross. Wisdom is not found in great strength, but in great weakness. It is not found in life, but in death. But, and here's the but, the foolishness of God is wiser than any human wisdom. The wisdom of the world is no wisdom at all, it turns out, because it's built on the acquisition of knowledge. The foolishness of God is true wisdom because it is built on that which remains when knowledge runs out. I sometimes wonder what I'll be like when I'm 90 if I get that far. Well, I still have my cognitive faculties. It's a worry, isn't it? True wisdom lasts long beyond the point at which our brains run out of capacity. Because true wisdom is the love of God for each of us at each moment of our lives, shown through the love of Jesus in the inarticulate baby. So do you want to be wise? I think I do. And if we want to be wise, says Paul, we should become fools so that we may become wise. We have to let go of our certainties and replace them with humble and honest questions. We have to take the path of the wise magi from the east and follow our questions to new places and discover wisdom in unexpected people and unexpected places to find that God is beyond all our imagining and all our comprehension. So, what, what, what do you think you know? Well, what do you think you don't know? What is wisdom in the face of all your knowledge and your lack of knowledge? What does it mean for us in this community to discover the Ubuntu wisdom of interconnectedness, which is that I am nothing without you and maybe you are nothing without me? Who do we need to hear more clearly? Who are we not listening to? What might they be saying to us? Where are the silenced voices in our midst? And finally, do we have the courage to learn from our mistakes, to release our certainties, and to trust ourselves to this mysterious wisdom of that which is still unknown and may never be fully known, but is known in Christ? Holy God, it is not wise to expect to be fed with a tiny morsel of bread or to have enough to drink when it's contained in such a small glass. And yet here we have been nourished and our thirst has been quenched through bread broken and wine poured in thanksgiving for your son, Jesus Christ. 
It is not wise. It is not sensible to look for meaning in the story of a helpless child and a broken man on a cross and wild tales of life beyond death. And yet in these stories, the wisdom of the divine fills our lives and gives us identity and hope and courage. It is not sensible to look to one another and see here promise of a world to come of justice and joy, of hope and flourishing, and yet in the foolishness of your wisdom, that is what you promise in and through us to your world. And you bewilder us. And you confuse us and you upset us and you love us. And though it is not sensible, it is wise. And we give ourselves to you. And we pray for our world. We pray for those in power. That as well as power and sometimes knowledge, as well as strength and intention, you will give to them wisdom. The wisdom that comes from that deep, still place of unknowing and being loved. And the wisdom that shows itself in a willingness to change, in an openness to new possibilities, in a commitment to hearing that which is unheard and expressing compassion and love and a welcoming of the other. We pray for those who must take huge decisions, decisions which will affect the lives of many politically and economically and militarily. And we pray that you will surround them with those who are wise as well as giving them their own wisdom. And that the experience of Ubuntu, of community, of discovering that we belong together and that we share a common humanity and a common world will inform the decisions that are made and the choices that are offered so that life may flourish. We remember before you the communities of which we're a part. This congregation and other congregations represented here, the places where we live, our families, the places we work, all the circles in which we move. And we pray for lives that will be touched with grace and gentleness and courage that the gift of your life, your love and your grace might take root and flourish in the communities where we live. And that we might both see it and be it as we seek to live from your wisdom and your presence. 
We give you thanks for all those who sustain our communities and our society. For those who keep us safe. For those who work within our justice system. For those who seek to do good in systems that all too often are not set up well or set up for good. For those who work in our social services and in our health services, who look to care. For those who are sustaining through the care service and through care homes, offering ongoing life to those who are struggling to cope themselves. And even as we pray for all those who are our infrastructure and make our world work, we remember those for whom it is not working. And we pray for those within our own society and our own community whose needs are not being met and who are particularly vulnerable and at risk. And we pray for those around the world who are living with the consequences of others' unwise decisions and choices. So that now there is not enough food, or there is not enough water, or there is too much fear and violence, and life becomes unmanageable. And before you now, we pray, bring justice and peace. A life of wisdom and fulfillment that you have made us for. And may we be part of its coming as we seek to live your kingdom into being. We give you thanks for what you have given us here. In these gifts of bread and wine and one another. And now as we leave and go into our various activities and places at the beginning of the week and the beginning of the year, lead us ever deeper into your love and life so that we may live as those who are the coming of your kingdom for the blessing of your world. In Jesus' name, amen.